Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleagues John Easton and Adam Belmar. John is the former Chief of Staff to Senators Kelly Ayotte and Gordon Smith, and is known in Washington as a most excellent campaign and legislative strategist. Adam is a recovering journalist and television producer. He worked for George W. Bush and is known for his prowess as a visual storyteller. And I'm your host, John Fury. We are broadcasting live from EFB Worldwide Headquarters, a block away from the iconic and historic Eastern Market on Capitol Hill. And we are delighted that you joined us today and tuned in. Theory 1, Kelly's Hero. John Kelly, the former general and the current chief of staff in the White House, came to the briefing room and knocked it out of the park. He basically told the media that they needed better sources, that he wasn't unhappy in his job, and that he wasn't going to be fired anytime soon. My theory? General Kelly is no Alexander Haig. He is large and in charge, and the country should feel better knowing that he is controlling the paper flow to this president. Adam Belmar, you saw the general's briefing. What are your thoughts? Well, it was a a surprise appearance. The uh, press secretary took to the podium, Sarah Huckabee Standards, and she had a little surprise up her sleeve. No one was expecting the chief. It's a bit of a rarity uh, not to have the chief of staff out, but at the podium, and especially for this chief of staff, who has kept a very low profile and was actually quite humble in what he felt he still wasn't really on top of. Uh, But he did frame, uh, as you pointed out, John, the context of his presence in terms of, I'm not quitting, I'm not getting fired, and I have no intention of voting someone off the island on Friday. So we'll wait and see if that bodes uh, for anyone's longer-term service at the White House. But I felt like having uh, General Kelly out there was a really wise and advantageous thing for this White House. It helps to settle things down, and I think it helped to put the romper room in uh, on warning a little bit. He told them, point blank, John Fury, that they needed to get better sources. And the thing he also told them, which I felt was very frank, was that when you see pictures of me with my head in my hands, I am thinking. He is a contemplative human who is not upset and angry and horrified by the president during speeches, but rather thinking, he says, and that people should not make assumptions about the look on his face. Uh, There are a lot of political ramifications here, but this was a very wise move for the White House. So, John Easton, um, you spent many years as a chief of staff, and now with the chief of staff in the White House is different than the chief of staff to a senator, Mm -hmm. but same same leadership role. You're you're serving as a principal, um, and that's not an easy job because you want to make sure that you're doing all you can to keep the, the flow of information to the boss but also that you're making the boss happy, but also that the, the boss doesn't do stupid things, uh, not that your, your members would ever do that. Uh, so what are your thoughts about General Kelly? Well, first, I, I can't imagine being chief of staff to this president, uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad as chief of staff I never had to go in front of the world to give a briefing. <laughs> but I, I think what fascinated me yesterday, because I, I was actually had the, the, the briefing on in the background, uh, like a lot of us do, just consuming this kind of news, and I was surprised. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, but I think what – has fascinated me more about this than the actual briefing itself yesterday, which he did, he did a good job. I don't think he made a lot of news, but he did a good job, 
was what was the conversation like between the president and John Kelly about doing this briefing? Do you think that uh, it was the president who said, we got to get you out there? Or do you think General Kelly said, you know what, I think this is the right time for me to get out there? You know, I just think it, it however the conversation went, whether whoever drove right. this idea uh, matters less than the fact that the president was willing to have this done. Because we all know the president doesn't like um, others getting more credit or more praise than himself. He's a guy about all about entertainment, all about TV. So to say, yep, go on out there and do it, probably full well knowing, as you said, the guy's a hero. The guy, I mean, the guy really is a, you know, such a, um, has such stature, John Kelly does, with this White House and friends of ours who work in the White House say as much, that he ha really has had a, an organizing common effect on the West Wing. So I think what he, he went out and did, this was the right call, in part because he was able to say, you know, this is a, a, a structure that, um, that is organized, and I'm in charge of the staff. I'm not in charge of the boss, but I'm in charge of the staff. And to Adam's point, I do think it, it has calmed some roiling waters of North Korea, the Iran deal, even this personal down-in-the-mud flap with Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. I, I just think all of that, they, they, they were able to put it down. So um, let's talk a little bit about Bob Corker, but I also want to say about John Kelly – is he has a lot of self-confidence. He's a confident man, and when he walks up before that podium, he knows what he's talking about, and he knows exactly what he wants to say, and he doesn't really go off script per se, but he doesn't need a script because right. he knows. And he, he know, didn't have one yesterday. And he, he had didn't, a few ideas. And, and, and he, didn't, he knew exactly what he wanted to say, and that self-confidence is so inspiring for people who are wondering about this White House. And I want to go back to the Bob Corker thing, but I also want to talk a little bit about this idea that maybe the White House is trying to pro promote this idea of Donald Trump out of control, the madman theory, the idea that, you know, you need to be able to cut a deal with this guy because we don't know what he's going to do. Because there's so many – There's precedent for this. Lots there's, of precedent. There's, there's precedent, and there's also a lot of blind quotes from staff that I, sometimes I think we're all getting set up here. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one thing I would say that, uh, that General Kelly did well yesterday was he sort of – nullified this proposition that he was somehow brought in to manage the president in his tweeting. And he clearly said, I am not. You can't gauge me on what the president's doing. I, that's not for me to say. What he talked about was the structure that you talked about, the information flow, what, what I was privy to, and, and, and I wasn't at that highest level in briefings with the president of the United States in the Oval Office, but when you're in the White House senior staff, you realize the role of staff secretary the chief's office and the flow in and out of the president is meant to be productive and meant to give him value and bring in people that are going to offer the policy suggestions that are going to help him make decisions. That's what the general is doing. That's what a chief should do. And we should all rest a little assured that That's you've enough. heard his voice. You know he's from Massachusetts. He sounds like a God-fearing American who made one last point. The best job he ever and, and had. I think the, the, a, I the, the, the press in that room, in the, in the White House brief room, they respect him almost universally. Right. I, I think there's no question. I think that's right. And that, and that helped him yesterday. It helps him in his job in general. Yeah, right. let's talk a little bit about tweeting because we're going to talk about the how General Kelly said, that's not my, my portfolio. I don't oversee the tweeting. Now, uh, we do know that he loves to tweet this president. We know that he loves to tweet against people that he deems as being enemies – and we know that sometimes members of the Senate, like Bob Corker, are going to respond in kind. I don't know if this really helps Bob Corker, you know, um, 
to kind of talk about the fact that you know he this is an adult daycare and kind of promote this idea of you know, Kelly said that he had spoken to Corker in that press conference. Yeah. That was one of the things he said. Asked and answered. I've had a chance to talk to Corker since those comments. And you need Corker for a bunch of different things, yeah. John. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on how we handled how did, how did the Senate? I, I think that my thoughts are in my reaction to this whole Bob Corker, President Trump flap that, that just started to degrade and go into the mud. It was you just – you just don't want to get off substance with this president if you are offering a critique. Because when you offer a critique and, and it gets personal, Donald Trump will out-personal you to the ground. So keep it substance-driven. And, and I think that, 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 that President Trump will respond a lot better that way. And, and let's face it, I think we've got more of this coming. I think more senators will speak out. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're necessarily afraid of him. But they should be afraid to speak out in personal terms because this is where Donald Trump will go every single time. We've seen it all the way back to the, the 2016 presidential primary. He fights. He, he fights fire with with you know overwhelming oh, fire yeah. in ways that you know is unprecedented in politics. It, but it is very fitting for a reality show president. I mean, if you look at any kind of reality show where they just cut you to pieces and people cheer about that, I mean that's kind of what's been happening here. Right. And I think that Trump is kind of more in touch with how. People are out there talking than, than most politicians. What do you guys make of the, the narrative that Corker first said he wasn't going to run for your election and then he started to square off against the president? Is it just being unencumbered by the burden of reelection that makes a, a, a political leader able to finally tell the truth? Or was there something greater going on and Corker needed to do this, break with him on – the personal level, but there's a lot of other foreign relations stuff that's going on and heavy, uh, weighing on heavily on the minds of folks right now. Well, I mean, I think Corker, you know, first of all, he last week he said he's not sure if he wanted to vote for the tax cut, um, and then he said he wasn't going to run again, and so he's unburdened by having to face the voters, which I think is, you know, unfortunate because if, if you face the voters, then you you have to be more careful in what you say, and now he's a completely independent actor. And is he going to represent the constituents, or is he going to represent his own personal thoughts? And this is, a, I think, that's troubling, actually. Yeah, and I, so I think it's a little bit of both. I think that uh, he is unencumbered a bit, uh, but I, I do think that um, that for somebody of of his stature to uh, directly critique the president, like that, he's chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and there are so many hot topics going on right now uh, on the on the world stage that this was. Um, I was, it was a shot. Now, Bob Corker, if anybody, if those of you who've watched him over the years know that he's a pretty independent guy right. to yeah. begin with. Right. I think he's really frustrated. So to be a little more unencumbered by re-election, just almost guaranteed he was going to go out and say something. Right, exactly. Um, we're going to go to the next theory. Theory two, repealing Obama. Elections have consequences. When Barack Obama was president... He sought to change America using the power of his pen and the power of his telephone. But after 10 months in the White House, it is clear that there is a new sheriff in town. President Trump is walking away from all the major legacy items of his predecessor. From the Iran deal to DACA, from ACA subsidies to the Paris Treaty, the new president is repealing Obama, not just Obamacare. My theory President Obama's legacy was built on faulty logic and shaky constitutional footing. President Trump will get grief from the media, but not from the bulk of the American people, especially his political base. John Easton, what say you about 
repealing Obama. I do agree with your theory that this is a driving force of not just this president, but a lot of the people who he has hired to serve with them in this administration and in the West Wing of the White House. I think there is a fervor to try to unearth, undo, and you know put Barack Obama's policies um, into the grave. I do disagree with the approach, though. I, I, I like if something's unconstitutional and they want to challenge it on, on those grounds, I think that's fine. The problem is, is that this, and this is part of the dif- dysfunction of, of Congress. And, and when you have a dysfunctional Congress that, that doesn't seem to get anything done, and this is back with uh, Barack Obama's days as well, is that you have a, an administration, a president who is going to do many, many things by executive order. So then, and then if we, the party changes in the White House, we're just going to go undo all those executive orders. So my feeling is the, the more that, that Congress can do and, and legislatively, the more these things are going to hold up. Yeah. We don't want to go back and forth each time a party changes in the White House. We're just going to go back and undo. We need to look forward. And the, the best, thing, best way we can look forward and actually push policies forward is by Congress to do its well, that, job. Well, that's kind of my point in that the AC, ACA subsidies, which are, are now, now – We're talking specifically about – the subsidies in the insurance markets for insurers. Right, and, and as part of Obamacare, the pre- president makes the point that they're not constitutional because they were never authorized by Congress. And they're as part of the law, they're not appropriated by Congress, and Congress has to do that. I think that is actually a pretty well-thought-out uh, position that the president is taking. He's getting hammered for undermining Obamacare, but that was sh- the shaky ground that Obamacare was built on. You talk about the Iran deal, Adam. Um, that's never, that was never a treaty. That was right. never a treaty. It never went to, went to Congress. They, they were voted on something, but it was not a treaty. Uh, the same thing with the Paris Climate Accord. Not a treaty. And uh, you, you talk about DACA, an executive order. He should have done law. The president built up all these legacy items, President uh, Obama, that were always going to be shaky, always easily repealed. And I think that's the reason why his legacy is going to be easily repealed by President Trump. Well, uh, certainly President Trump is doing – what he said he would do. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, especially Democrats, and that there is a constitutional and legal justification bolstered by the uh, Justice Department and HHS with regard to the subsidies. Um, I think what regular Americans, everyday folk who are out there and not following politics every day, should hopefully understand is that the markets price things in. There are people who are watching and knowing what to expect and premiums for the coming year are already going to be up. People have priced this into the market. They saw this coming. And so while we talk about this big change that's going to come, um, that we were already headed there. This is not really anything new. It's just the president taking action. And as he said on Sean Hannity's show the other night, why didn't I do it earlier? Well, I was really hoping that we were going to get Congress to be able to affect these things in a permanent way and realizing that that didn't come to fruition, he's now taking the executive action route on this one. So, um, you know, I think the president's on good ground here politically, uh, constitutionally, and I think he really needs to do a good job in explaining all of this and what he hopes for the future and painting a picture of what things should look like and not just batting down the Obama legacy. John Easton, it seems to me that what in a couple of these things, especially when we're talking about uh, Obamacare and talking about DACA, the president is lighting a fire under Congress to get its act together and do something. The question is, will Congress 
get its act together and do something. Uh, and I think that if you think about DACA, for example, with the Dreamers, um, he gave it a six-month deadline. He said he's open to extending that deadline if he has to. Uh, but And then the White House put all kinds of very tough mm-hmm. negotiating ploys, uh, negotiating points, drafted by Stephen Miller, um, that the Democrats are, don't know how to handle. Um, do you think that they're going to get deals on these things? Well, I think you know, back to your, your your point about the executive, really governing by executive order. I, I truly believe that if if President Trump doesn't want to become President Obama in terms of having all of his policies undone, mm-hmm. he's got to work with Congress to get it legislatively, you know, ground in and 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 done. Because look how hard it is to to repeal Obamacare. It's because this thing was done in the House, Senate, signed by the president. So what, what he's doing on, on the Affordable Care Act, yeah, he's, it's still tinkering around the edges. I know it's a big deal, but it's, it's still that it's going to have, you know, uh, lasting effects. We'll see. Now, if they, if they start to attack this legislatively, you know, it looks like they're going to have to do it bit by bit. Then it will have, you know, the, the, the power of policy. Uh, Adam, you've, you've been talking uh, offline about the Iran deal. Um, what do you think is going to happen with, with, with what's happening with Iran? Well, I think for many of us uh, who aren't steeped in foreign policy or this deal, uh, the idea that we are keeping the Iranian nuclear program in a box and that we've heard from many other foreign leaders, uh, including our own Secretary of State and others, who say that this is working, um, and General Kelly reiterated it uh, a bit yesterday, and then tangentially also with what we're dealing with with uh, North Korea. When the president decertifies today, uh, what he's saying is that uh, we want to snap back the sanctions. We want to start renegotiating, right? This is the president's big mantra. It was a bad deal. We've got to renegotiate. I think that we have reason to be worried here. The Iranian state is diametrically opposed to the existence of Israel. They are a huge player in the war on terror, supporting uh, Hezbollah, ISIS. Um, There are a lot of things for us to be worried about, but a nuclear Iran is uh, anathema to our security, and I think that the president has got to be careful. He's playing with things that are very, very tricky, and I think he might, if he doesn't explain this very well today, make some people very happy, but on the world stage, he's going to put our credibility in jeopardy, well, and that but worries it, me. But that also goes to uh, the reason why President Obama cut this deal with the Iranians, is that there was a lot of pressure from the Europeans and other countries outside of uh, Israel that wanted, because they wanted to do business with Iran. Iran's a big country. There's some they big American lot, companies that are doing it. There's a lot of American companies that right have, have for a long time. And so this is a lot more complicated than people think. I think you're right that the president has to be careful on this. I'm glad that General, General Mattis and uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and John Kelly are the triumvirate. We're kind of keeping this thing all in line. And McMaster, line. too. And McMaster. That these guys kind of know. They're, they're, they're adults, but they're, they understand this. They also understand that there's implications for what happens in North Korea. Yeah. And this goes back to my Mad Men theory. I was just going to say that. Yeah. That I think that sometimes – I think they are playing it pretty well, and they're not going to get credit for it. 
But, you know, I think if I were a come Kim Jong-un, I'd be a little bit concerned about this. But they need to play this Iran thing very, very carefully. Yeah, and I think uh, there is precedent to this madman theory, I think, going back to Eisenhower with, with nukes. Uh, you never knew whether you wanted to use them or not. I don't think he did. But uh, he always would say, uh, give me a tactical nuclear weapons option on this. And he knew that that would leak out. Right. To, to the rest of the world, and they were really taken back by this. I mean, he, this is the great General Eisenhower we're right. talking about here. To Reagan, who would also, people thought he was half off his, out of his rocker, and, and, and now we've got, and even George W. Bush to an extent, uh, not nearly like this. So I, I'll say this, I hope it's a madman theory. I hope <laughs> that is the, the case because... I hope he's not really a madman. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope he's not crazy, but because he, he acts like it. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about this is one of the th- stories that leaked out is that Trump wanted ten times more nuclear weapons. He wants to ref- – he wants – and this, this is all part of what Rex Tillerson was, was talking about theoretically about the president having, you know, not, not, not having the You're IQ. You're dancing around it. Yeah, when he theoretically called him a moron. We're not sure if he did or not. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is the thing is the president wants uh, more uh, nuclear weapons, and that's, a, that's actually pretty expensive. And a lot of the military says, hey, we, we've got the military that we need. We don't need to rely on nuclear weapons. I, look, no one else, no one's in the room. Nobody knows. But, you know, the president has since, and Secretary Kelly, or, or, or Deputy uh, Chief Kelly, uh, said this yesterday. The president is really talking about our nuclear posture. He's very in, uh, interested in and has been working behind the scenes to fund the military and to do the 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 hard work of getting us back on a good footing. And he's right to do that. I agree with that as a Republican. Um, But I I have to say that he also, I think, takes the ability to be the president and to speak provocatively among folks, even when he's not steeped in knowledge about things. And he may well have said that. And they probably did push back and say, well, Mr. President, we're, we're limited by treaties. It's been the official policy of the United States for the last... 30 years to bring down the overall started started forces. started by Ronald Reagan. Absolutely. Um, and so there's a learning curve for the president, but he did go back and clarify again on Hannity this week where he said, what I really want is all of our nuclear weapons to be in tip top shape. And you know what? Anybody who's been watching the news knows that uh, the men and women of our nuclear forces military are stretched thin, that they need to be resupplied and that that, whole nuclear triad is being tested and it requires presidential leadership you know and you know having a nuclear deterrent is one of the things that distinguishes us from everybody else hell yeah and so getting rid of it like president obama wanted to get rid of it was actually i thought kind of destabilizing Uh, but anyway that's that's another topic theory three it might be a bunch of superstitious mumbo jumbo but then again eternity is a long time My Uncle Bob used to tell me that all the time in the context of organized religion and more specifically having to do with Pascal, the famous uh, philosopher who talked about organized religion, who was a great Catholic, and said, you know, this might be a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, but the gamble, if you take the gamble, you might as well gamble on on behalf and and believe because believers are going to win out in the end. Um, But I was thinking about this more in terms of how people try to influence events outside their control, like the Washington Nationals. Um, I know people uh, who didn't go to Game 5 because they felt like they were... People? 
or me. <laughs> I know people were wearing shirts uh, that they wore the last three games that they won in the hopes that they'll somehow influence their event. I told a, f- a couple of friends, including you, John Easton, that I wasn't going to the game, and you thought I was nuts. And I had other people who came up to me and said, uh, yeah, what do you think, that you're the center of the universe? And, um, and then I had other people thanking me for not going to the game because they were – they were so worried <laughs> that the Nationals, you know... Well, let's gonna... be clear. While John Fury was stricken with superstition and was trying to do his part in the universe to help the Nats win last night, he did not deprive his wife and son the opportunity to go to the game. Well, yeah, and I, I, listen, that's, that's, that's... And I think my son couldn't handle the truth. He was having a hard time with this game. And the game was um, a disappointment. Um, so I was going to ask you the question, John Easton, about what good luck charms you use and any thoughts you had on that terrible game last night. Well, one, I, I, my superstition is not to be superstitious, really. And, and, and I was a, a while ago, a long time ago, and then I finally realized that uh, this is insane. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it really is. And, and last night, walking to the game, it's the beauty of living on Capitol Hill, you get to walk to Nats Park. We actually walked on a certain side of the street, thanks to one of our former guests, uh, Meg Hauk, uh, because that is the side of the street we walk on <laughs> to win. So uh, it, it just it's funny. I think what it really speaks to, uh, in all seriousness, is, is superstitions with sports. It just it actually speaks to the um, the devotion and and the faith and the um, just how much they really believe in their team and how much they want to win and that's the fun part of it and and I, I, I try not to get too superstitious because honestly it's like I, I may not have the shirt anymore I may not have the pants that I wore the last time we won and I just I can't go through that but it is fun and, and my, my thoughts on Nats last night was this because I was there and very proud of of our fandom of the Washington Nationals fan base that stadium last night was on fire it was louder than I've ever heard it we almost never sat the entire five hours of this game and and I I would have liked a different result it was excruciating and I can't believe we didn't win another game five but I'll tell you what last night deepened our fan base even more I will say the irony of the superstitious thing and playing the Cubs is pretty rich because there was a famous saying about the Billy Goat Tavern and the fact that uh, there was a um, – I can't even remember the, 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 the long uh, deal here where it was a superstitious that somehow a uh, someone with a Billy Goat Tavern was somehow crossed and he put a hex on the Cubs. And one time during the 1969 uh, when the, the Cubs were way ahead against the New York Mets, there was a black cat that – that crossed in front of Ron Santo, and that was some reason why the Cubs collapsed. And then there's a famous story of Steve Bartman, who caught a um, pop fly foul ball and got it out of the, the mid of some poor uh, – uh, I can't remember who the, the left fielder was. But this guy became a, a, a scapegoat for the fact that the Cubs couldn't win. And the scapegoating is a big part of superstition. Uh, Adam – and it, ha- and it can be very negative. But to your point, all these things that all the, the, the Nats fans were trying to do was as a way to kind of show that they are on board with them winning and that they had devotion to the, to the team, which is what a fan, you know, being a fan of Major League Baseball is supposed to be all about. And are there any superstitions for the, the Redskins? 
Because I know that you don't care no, about this. No, I'm, uh, I'm not a superstitious fellow. Um, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to bring it up, and I, and I thought to myself, you know, is there anything like this? And I, I, the only thing I would say is that, um, you know, when I, I was a bowler for many years uh, on a team, and I used to respond better even when I was doing well. If anybody said, great job, you're doing great, I'd be like, no, just tell me I suck. <laughs> <laughs> the more I hear that, the less pressure I feel. But uh, no, there's. I don't. I'm not into Jewish mysticism or superstition. I'm just uh, me. You're just you. Um, not talking about superstition, but John Easton, do you think that uh, Dusty Baker should be resigned, or or do you think that it's time for him to to, to move on? It is a good question. I, I I'm still trying to process this the outcome from last night, but I don't think that Jason Worth will be back. I've I've enjoyed his. His uh, being on the team all these years, I think he's had a tremendous impact as a leader. Uh, Dusty Baker, I know he's a player's kind of manager, and I think he's gotten a lot out of these guys. Uh, but, you know, we're just trying to find the formula here, and we've gone through a number of managers. Well, is the rub that he just doesn't know how to manage these pitchers into the postseason? Well, that's that's Maddox's job, and, and, and I think Dusty defers to the pitching coach, Mike Maddox, and as he should. But... You know, if they're really looking to uh, shake things up after this excruciating, another excruciating loss in Game Five, then no, I don't think he, he'll return. And I will say, it isn't a tremendous surprise. It's a surprise to us, but the Cubs had the best record in the second half of the season. They were they've been pretty hot. The Nationals played them pretty tough. I think that the thing my my concern about Dusty is he didn't change up the lineup at all. I mean, you know, Howie Kendrick, great player, didn't. Didn't even play. Yeah. Um, Wilmer Defoe, you know, didn't play at all when you, you know, had Trey Turner who, you know, batted 0 for 14, the first 14 at-bats. And you need a guy who's going to get on. So there wasn't a whole lot of creativity. I like Dusty Baker. I, don't, I thought that he misplayed Albers, who was pitching pretty well, took him out after one inning. I don't think that Scherzer should have come in. I think he was kind of browbeat into bringing Scherzer in. Um, but, you know, I, I like Dusty Baker. I think he's a great American um, I'm really disappointed that the Nationals didn't win. He's a great American. He's a great American. I appreciate his heart. See where I am. I, I appreciate him. Uh, that was my George much. W. Thank you very that much. Was, thank you very much. Uh, finally, good. a new segment, Buy, Sell, or Hold. Tell us the insider stock that our viewers should buy, sell, or hold. John Easton. My stock, and I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy some McConnell. I'm going to buy some Mitch McConnell today. Why? Because I think that on tax reform, the single biggest issue for Republicans in Washington, D.C. and across the land, I think it's going to get done. And I think in part because Mitch McConnell knows how to run the Senate and he knows how to run his caucus. Adam Belmar. I'm going to go way out there with this one, ladies and gentlemen of the interwebs. If I'm recommending a buy, it's Arby's. Mm Mm-hmm. They have the meats, and then now they've got more meats. They're coming out with sandwiches that are elk and venison. Hunting season is on. Bye, bye, bye. We have the meats. Wow. Wow. You didn't uh, expect that, did you? I'm getting kind of hungry. I'm, kind of, I'm starving, actually. Um, <laughs> my buy is Ed Gillespie running for governor in uh, Virginia. Ed's an old friend. Uh, I think that he has got some really good ads uh, in, running in northern Virginia. That puts the Democrat, Ralph Northam, on the defensive, especially about MS-13. You don't want to be associated with MS-13 if you're a politician. 
Gillespie is going a good job or of being putting, weak on crime, being or weak in crime. The way North and so I, I think uh, that um, Gillespie has a strong message, and I'm going to buy Gillespie because most people inside the Beltway don't think he's got a chance. So let's talk a little bit about these three things. So Arby's, where, when, when are they making these new sandwiches? This was all the big news uh, yesterday in the uh, in, in in the mainstream media, um, the non fake news. Uh, look, it, it, it's a one day thing, I think, with the venison. It's a multi-market test for the elk. I think that uh, people love the commercials. My grandfather um, was a big Arby's fan. He was from out west. Uh, I know a lot of people don't like Arby's. There's one out in, uh, in Virginia that I take the kids to regularly. I think Americans are interested in this. That's why I say buy. And if you're in a market where you, where you see the commercials and stuff out there, let's go check it out. Let us know. Comment below. If you, if you get any uh, of this new Arby's, we have the meat sandwich, let us know. And we might just well, be we, we'd like, I'd like to know. I'd like to know about it on, on the Facebook. That would be great. If you, if you comment on it, because I'm never going to go in Arby's. I think it's disgusting. I'll but. bring it to you. <laughs> what? What? You know what, uh, John? I, am, I think you're right about Mitch McConnell. Um, he's been getting a lot of grief from a lot of these conservative groups. Well, I'm not sure how conservative. I think a lot of these folks are doing this just to kind of build up their mailing list. Sure. And, yeah, you know, Mitch McConnell is a punching bag um, because he's a leader, and he's also – he's not a superstitious guy. He's very realistic, although he's also a Nance fan. Um, you know, but I do think they're going to get um, tax reform done. Right, and I, and I think – and I say it's – this is where McConnell shines because, one, this is the most natural issue to Republicans, tax reform. Uh, and, and, two – Mitch McConnell is a very good tactician. This is much more about the inside game from here on out, from here till Christmas, uh, than anything else. He's got a. He, it's it's about moves within committees and then on the floor and, and and really managing that floor well. And I think he has the experience and and the and the know how to do it, and his staff does as well. So I think on a must do piece of legislation like tax reform, I think he's the guy to get it done. You know, Kelly got asked specifically about whether he. Um, blames McConnell for health care reform going down. And he he said, uh, he dodged the question a little bit, but in a tactful way, and said, look, it's hard to be a leader, and you've got Republicans out there who just won't come together, and it's impossible to get some folks uh, to make those tough votes. And so he's not putting the blame on McConnell. I think it would be unwise for him to do that, especially since he's working on behalf of the administration. But that was another point of diplomacy and tact that came through in the Chiefs uh, press conference yesterday. Thank you all for joining us today for the Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. Yeah, baby.